Hi everyone and welcome to UCL Brain Stories. I'm Selena and I'm here with my co-host Steve. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. It's a real pleasure today to be joined by Professor Tamar Makin, who is a professor in cognitive neuroscience at the ICN, the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London, and she's the group leader of the Plasticity Group. So welcome, Tamar. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us. We usually um, kick off these interviews by asking our guests to say a few words about who you are and and what do you focus on in in your research? Okay, so uh, I'm Tamar, and the question that has been inspiring most of my research is the question of cortical reorganization. So um, let's take a brain area that has been carefully crafted through many millions of years of evolution and maybe even in early development to perform a very specific function. And the function I care most about is hand function. Now, let's take a person who doesn't need hand function because they don't have a hand because they lost it, let's say, to amputation. The question I'm interested in is, given this redundant brain resource, can we make this hand area carry out a function that is not the one that it was originally designed to carry out. So maybe instead it can support uh, fit in order to increase the dexterity of the fit, or maybe it can do something completely different like control an artificial limb. So if we could, as neuroscientists, harness this process of reorganization where we can mix and match brain powers based on demand, we could potentially offer a really incredible tool for society and for the clinic. But the more I work on brain reorganization, the more disenchanted I am with this notion. So maybe the question that has been more useful to ask in recent years is, okay, given reorganization is not a real um, promise, what can we do with these redundant resources in order to improve the clinical care and quality of life of people? It would be interesting maybe at some stage to get into your disillusionment, uh, maybe later on. Um, but I just wanted to go back to something you said there about just so um, for our listeners, they kind of understand where you're coming from with this research. So you mentioned the hand area. So maybe you could just say a little bit about what area of brain you're focusing on there and what do we know about its anatomy? What, what kind of questions are you currently asking uh, about how that part of the brain works? So hand function is straight up one of the most important necessary functions uh, that the body affords. And in order to achieve hand function, it's not enough to just be able to get tactile information from the hand or just be able to control the fingers of the hand and the wrist and so on. You really need coordinated, orchestrated um, synchronization of inputs coming from all systems. Um, including vision, which is also really important for hand function, um, and all the way to motor intent and what people are trying to do with their hands. So the um, input and output primary areas of the hand are primary somatosensory motor cortex. And right there, there's this great big cortical patch that is dedicated to input and output from the hand. And 
it really um, benefits from prime cortical real estate because it is connected to lots of premotor and association areas, cerebellum, subcortical structures, uh, lots of um, desynaptic pathways in order to directly control the hand. So it's a really great area in terms of uh, structure. When you say um, real estate, so the homunculus, I guess, is important here, right? It's the idea that in the brain, there's more or less territory of cortex that's devoted to different areas of the body. And so for you, the hand is, I guess, one of the biggest areas um, of expanded cortex. Yeah, so um, it is probably the biggest territory if we factor in how small the physical hands are. But um, it's not just the size of the cortex, it's also the connections. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if we had to sell um, brain areas based on where they are along the sensory motor strip, most of us would want to we want to put some money on the hand area. <laughs> it's the zone one of the brain then. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens, you alluded to this in your introduction, but I f- and it might be a part of your disillusionment, so I'm diving straight in there. But if somebody does lose a limb if they lose their hand how does that affect the the kind of function of that area of the brain is this why we have phantom limb syndrome because the brain still rec- feels that, that that hand is there so just to just to highlight sensory motor cortex is great but as we said it's not enough for hand function so hand function is highlighted across multiple systems in the brain even the visual system has its own kind of territories where there seems to be strong selectivity for visual representation of the hand. So if you lose your hand to an amputation, you have a network of brain areas that are essentially unemployed. And intuitively, you might expect them to shrivel up and die, but that doesn't happen. Um, and what, uh, if you read the textbook, what the, the promise, especially for the sensory motor areas, is that um, these areas would be taken over or conquered by other uh, neighboring territories. And it is this process that makes amputation and sensory motor system unique and different from other situations, for example, blind individuals. So uh, according to the textbook, and again, I, I think the textbook is inaccurate to wrong, but according to the textbook, if you lose your eyesight late in life, you know, once once the once the system has been kind of set up, once the blueprint has been realized through early development, you can't you can't do much to change it and it and it becomes kind of redundant resources. But in the sensory motor systems, maybe, and I'm just speculating, maybe because our trajectory for development, motor development, is much more protracted than vision and audition and other basic functions. The idea is that there's a lot more scope for learning, plasticity, and reorganization within the sensory and the motor networks. And the idea is that um, the territory of the hand would be uh, taken by neighboring body parts. And there's been lots of um, theories and speculations about whether this process is adaptive, whether it would be helpful, you know, provide people with superpowers to cope with their disability, because they have now increased computational resources in order to support body function or and unfortunately that's the dominating theory today that 
this amount of change at this amount of scale so late in life is going to be maladaptive. So the brain wouldn't know how to interpret these conflicting signals. And this has been speculated to be the trigger and cause of phantom limb pain. So the sensation of pain arising from the body part that is amputated. I find it fascinating. So how does this then interact with the idea of prosthetics? I, I was sort of reading it in advance of us recording this a little bit about the third thumb project. So maybe I can ask you about, about yeah. that in your own words rather than me asking a silly question. <laughs> so the notion of reorganization, whether it's adaptive or maladaptive, um, and working with amputees raises lots of questions, not just about phantom pain, where there's hips and hips in literature about the relationship between reorganization and pain, but also um, the, the notion of adaptive plasticity that you, you could do something with the resources you have. And of course, um, artificial end is a big part of it. So if you um, go into the literature of prosthetics, there's a very strong interest and ambition from the biomedical engineering community to try and interface the technology, the artificial body part, with the infrastructure that is already available in order to represent our hands and our body. And the notion is pretty simplistic. We, term, we, we term it embodiment. The idea is that we, if we could piggy bank or take advantage of the resources that are already there in order to afford hand function, then this would potentially make it much more easy for the brain to learn to control the artificial body part. So there's been lots of interest in how to physically interface the artificial limbs with the body through the periphery or through direct brain machine interfaces. But just as important as cognitive neuroscience questions about how would it feel for the user to control the prosthesis? Would it feel intuitive? Would it feel like a part of them? Uh, would, it be, um, would it be possible to generalize all these rich knowledge that we already have about what it's like to operate our own body in order to support motor control of an artificial body plant. And um, again, you know, starting to think more critically about these ideas that are very intuitive and very appealing, but in practice don't necessarily work because an artificial end is by definition not a body part. It is very different in the functionality that it affords and how it's being operated. And this could be a technological barrier. Maybe one day in the future, we would all have sky look, look Skywalker arms. <laughs> but, but, but maybe it's a, a conceptual problem. Either way, if you free yourself from this notion of embodiment, if you stop trying to be biomimetic, meaning mimic the way the body solves these problems in how you design your technology, this opens up really cool opportunities, for example, about um, making an artificial arm to be more than just a biological arm. I don't know, allowing you to maybe um, have like super strength and uh, teleoperate your house or whatever you want to do, because it's technology, right? So we're no longer limited to flesh and blood. And then, you know, if you're drawn to this idea, then the, the, the road to saying, hang on, why do we have to chop off our limbs in order to get superpowers is really short. And then you're like, hang on. So 
can we create artificial body parts that can do things differently or or just you know just more than compared to our biological body parts and this was the short road we've taken to uh, what we call motor augmentation so trying to achieve more or beyond what the biological body, body affords and this is a really really fun uh, and very novel uh, topic that introduces completely new research questions for cognitive neuroscience that I don't think anyone had to worry about before. Like, how do you control a body part that you've never had before or wasn't even designed to have through your blueprint, through your genetic template? Um, how do you provide feedback when you control this new body part? How do you learn to use it? Can, you, can we take principles from the body or do we have to, you know, to come up with new models in order to represent these technologies? With the Third Thumb Project, what is it that you're actually asking people to control that is novel in your experiments recently? So the Third Thumb is a prosthetic device designed by the wonderfully talented uh, prosthesis designer, Danny Claude, who's part of our lab. And um, Danny designed an opposable thumb, which he calls a third thumb because it goes on top of your biological already functioning thumbs. So the thumb would be attached uh, just under your pinky. So it is it mirrors your biological thumb. Uh, currently, depending on the version, it is controlled by two or three degrees of freedom, which are operated through your toes. So we put sensor pressures underneath your big toes uh, which would allow which would allow you to flex, extend, um, or adduct, abduct the thumb, the third thumb. Um, it is a surprisingly intuitive design. Mm -hmm. So within a couple of trials, so one or two trials, people can already achieve very basic uh, grasping. Within five minutes, they can already coordinate the movements of the third thumb with their biological hands. Mm -hmm. I should say the thumb is proportionally controlled, meaning you can pretty much afford any movements that you want with it. Uh, and this provides us with a very um, simple and beautifully designed model to ask what would happen to the way people operate their own biological hand when we give them the opportunity to uh, achieve daily tasks in a completely new model. And and this might sound like a stupid question. I'm just immediately thinking about the trade-offs with the foot. So can people learn to kind of walk and not activate their <laughs> new third thumb? So this is actually a study that we're currently uh, setting up, trying to look at um, side effects for the toes. Mm -hmm. At the moment, um, most of the tasks are being done while people are stationary. So we're, we're not providing pure augmentation because we have to trade off one function, which is walking, maybe balanced to an extent to afford another function, which is this extra thumb. But uh, other labs and other projects are trying to think about um, the opportunity to provide additional motor function without impairing another one. It's just a much more difficult and less intuitive endeavor. And how would this contrast with Again, I, I was sort of reading a little bit of background just to get myself familiar with the work you do. And how, how does this contrast with the way the brain deals with us using tools, for example? Um, so I think you had a recent study about litter pickers. Is that right? I was reading yeah. about. And I'd never, I'd never 
thought about it in this way before that when we use something that's hand operated, whether it's a screwdriver or something like a litter picker, how does your brain kind of deal with that? So how is how the, the third thumb would 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 work different to how we'd use a tool? I, I think the thumb and other augmentation devices have some shared attributes with tools and with prosthetics, but also their unique attributes. So um, where the attributes are shared is that both for a tool and for an augmentation device, you're trying to enhance your motor abilities. So with a tool, you would do something that you can't do with your hand because you don't have the strength or you don't have the dexterity. Same goes for the for the third thumb. You can, you know, for example, uh, grasp bigger objects or multiple objects or do several things at the same time. But this is where the analogy ends because when we use a tool, we manipulate the tool with our hands, at least traditionally. So similar to the discussion we had about the toes, you, you to an extent give up your hand function in order to afford another function with the tool. So a litter picker is a good example. So you perform something with your hand at the tip of at the sorry, the grasper of the tool in order to operate the tip of the tool. With the thumb, we actually invite you to operate your hand in a complementary way to the thumb. So you have, you have your full ability from your hand. We don't take away any of it and you don't have to adapt it in order to operate the third thumb itself or the augmentation device. Instead, the exercise is to extend your motor repertoire in order to figure out new ways to take advantage of this extra body part. And cognitively, I think it's a much more complicated uh, process because it's not just motor skill and it's not just the creativity um, to, to be able to operate the skill. It's, you know, kind of coming to the prefrontal cortex and, you know, Steve's expertise about thinking about, you know, thinking about more ambitious goals and how you'd like to achieve them. So you really need to kind of, in a sense, build new building blocks to your motor plan, which is quite complicated. So I've got so many questions, but our brainstorm is we also want to have some time to talk about you as a scientist and how you got into this field. So I guess the short question is, have you always wanted to augment the human? <laughs> this is a long-term goal. The longer, the longer question is, um, you know, what can you tell us a bit about your route into science like where did you where did you get started um i started getting interested into the body already in my undergrad so i guess compared to people in the uk i started pretty late so i started my undergrad when i was 23 completely standard for israelis but very unusual here in the uk and the advantage of starting at 23 is that you've had multiple years to kind of examine within yourselves where are your passions and what are your interests and and you know you work at a few jobs and you do a few things and you know it comes with a level of I think um, maturity and resilience um, and I started working on body representation in my undergrad, the first thing that grabbed me back then was the rubber hand illusion. 
uh, <laughs> which I've grown to hate. <laughs> so we won't talk about it today. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but I have too many friends who will have a stake in the rubber handy. Okay, lately. all right. We were just about pressure. <laughs> I was doing my PhD about hand-centered body representation or, or um, hand-centered representations of external uh, objects more accurately. So um, we know that in order to you know manipulate objects, we need to have a reference frame of the hand and how it moves in terms of you know the, the muscle scheme and so on. But we also need um, a representation of the object in space, and we need to interface them. And I was working on a network of areas that seem to have uh, this inherent information of the uh, objects relative to the hand stored online so that as you move, the representation of the object changes. And that led me to ask out of curiosity what would happen to people that don't have a hand, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would that mean that they represent visual information differently? And the hypothesis was yes, because, because of my previous work. And as a side project, I just got into, you know, this, this project looking at visual representation in people without a hand. And um, I got my answer. My answer was yes. But it was a tiny, tiny, tiny effect. So, you know, they had a visual distortion of about one degree over 60 degrees peripheral vision. But getting to, you know, meeting people with an upper name amputation um, was a really extraordinary experience for me because they are the most optimistic, um, you know, like level-headed, lovely, inspiring people you can imagine. And I've noticed that whenever I was coming to the lab, you know, and to, to test a participant, I was kind of leaving the lab feeling like the world has to be a better place than I think it is because these people are just, you know, there's such an incredibly positive and supportive attitude. I mean, they've already been through so much and they have to cope with so much and yet they find time to come to my mm -hmm. lab to take, you know, part in my silly little study. Um, so by the end of my PhD, it was very clear to me that I want to continue and work with amputees and that they provide a really interesting model to ask lots of questions about brain plasticity. But this experience also made me realize that um, I want to do work that has impact. I don't want to do work just for intellectual curiosity. There has to be a clear path towards impact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this means I can't work on small effect sizes. So one degree out of 60 is just not something I can, I can work on. So that really drove me to think about large effects and methodologies that allow me to see effects in single subjects. That's really, it's really interesting you say about effect sizes, because I feel like, I mean, Celine is more on the clinical uh, side of things than I am, but I feel like in psychology and basic science, we often lose sight of effect size, right? So there's so much focus on whether you've got a significant result that people kind of sometimes minimize whether it needs to be also a big effect to be interesting, right? And so I think that's a really useful corrective to have for, for everyone's research. But I'm just wondering, something else that struck me while you were talking there was something you mentioned earlier was this, it sounded almost like you've had a, a bit of a fight to change the textbook way of viewing things. And actually that this could have an interesting intersection with 
how much optimism you could expect from say adopting a novel prosthesis and and so on so just wondering whether you could say something about like has that been a fight has that been difficult politically within your field how has that played out i had incredible timing because when you know when when the textbook was being written back in the late 80s and early 90s the concept of a brain reorganization was really dominating in clinical research because the idea was that if you know it, we we can potentially guide our participants through so our patients through neurorehabilitation to do more with what's left from their brain this this is until today very very prominent in treatments for something like phantom in pain or, or stroke mm-hmm. rehab so everyone wanted to find reorganization you know the 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 clinicians wanted it, the funders wanted it, the scientists wanted it, the patients wanted it, because that was the promise of, of, of neuroscience research. But when I started working on these old questions, this is when, you know, the renaissance of brain-computer interfaces started. And to do a brain-computer interface, the last thing you want is reorganization. Because imagine, you know, opening someone's brain and sticking electrodes just to find out that, oops, it's been reorganized. It can no longer control an artificial limb, right? So suddenly there's a big um, sociological pull away from reorganization. Can you find us evidence that even if there's reorganization, maybe it's incomplete? And um, I found a lot of attentive audience uh, to, to kind of, you know, to hear my side of the story, which is, you know, previous evidence has been misleading. I think it has been misleading for political reasons, not, not because, of, because of science. But actually, if we come with a new paradigm, then there's, you know, ample evidence uh, against the organization for stability of the brain. And the added bonus of brain stability is that when you're designing technologies, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to customize too much. You want you want participants, you know, by and by to be pretty similar to each other. So it's it's it, it's a great advantage that you can count of something that is shared, no matter what how long it's been since you were amputated or what were the circumstances by which you lost your hand function, and so on, that we all have the same shared infrastructure. So um with that I've had great success mm-hmm. phantom pain mm-hmm. is a different story okay. so trying to change trying to change the paradigm for phantom pain has been a lot more difficult and so then looking forward maybe to marty your sort of next five years what are your kind of big questions that are coming up in your lab and the the areas that you're most excited about it's not fair because augmentation is so much fun <laughs> <laughs> that it makes me feel like I'm going to neglect in my answer my my other very important question. So you don't want to have a favorite child, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but augmentation is fun because like everything is kind of for the first time and there's just so much opportunities for cognitive neuroscience that hasn't haven't been, you know, um explored yet. So it is truly, you know, it feels like, you know, we're pioneering a new field that has, you know, kind of my wish list. It has societal impact. It's going to change the way we're going to interact with the world. It affords so many exciting, completely novel solutions for uh, clinical care and rehabilitation. 
uh, but also it gives us a new model to ask really basic questions about the brain and the body and, and what it means to be a body part and how do you learn to control the body part. So it's just such a great research program, but it's not the only one. So I do have other children. <laughs> uh, we are actually literally doing research in um, children that were born with um, hand malformations. This is such a difficult project. Working with kids is so challenging because they're not adults. <laughs> you can't just you can't just tell them what you need from them, you know. Um, but the families uh, and the kids have been incredible, and we are now scanning children um, of increasingly young. Uh, ages. And I'm super excited about this because all of the research, pretty much, you know, all of the research on on, on the sensory motor plasticity uh, is retrospective because we're looking at adults and we're trying to speculate what happened at the time where the brain was being shaped. And now we have the opportunity to actually track these changes as they unfold. And that's really, really exciting for us. And then lastly, my, my nemesis, phantom limb pain, um, it's a terrible infliction uh, that doesn't go away, incredibly common. We don't know why it happens, how it happens, and how to treat it. Um, and I think the reason I've been failing so much at, at making a meaningful um, impact on treatment for phantom limb pain is that I haven't been able yet to to come up with a successful treatment. So, you know, I can I can shout through the rooftops that what everyone's doing is wrong, but until I provide an alternative, I don't think anyone would have a strong reason to listen. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to understand why, why people have phantom pain and how we can modulate it. I was wondering um, about the augmentation, whether there's limits on this. And because the, re- the reason I ask is because there's a lot of hype around the kind of neurotech space. I'm thinking about Elon Musk and so on, about kind of all we're going to need to do is plug you in and you can, you know, interface with language. So I'm just wondering whether there's, you know, can you, can does your science that's like taking a very rigorous step-by-step approach on the motor system tell us anything about like the limits of that beyond motor control? So just for the record, Elon Musk um, is doing amazing, serious work. Yeah, no, it's, I'm not. It's not, it's not high. Well, so <laughs> they might pitch some of it as, you know, as very kind of cool and funky, but they're, they're doing the legwork. Yeah, no. They're doing I'm, a lot of serious work. No, I, that was not. Okay, maybe my question was um, <laughs> reading between the lines. Maybe it sounded like that. I didn't mean to say they weren't doing serious work now, but the promises are big, right? And so what I guess I'm asking you to do is speculate on whether those are overpromises or reasonable ones. Yeah, I mean, but we always overpromise. We overpromised on, on, on reorganization. I think, you know, this is the, the natural progression of every field. We overpromise to get resources and to get interest and excitement. And then we do the hard work and, and, and then we come up with the, you know, with the fine print and we come up with a more mature realization of what the field can promise so there's a lot of promise right now but i i'm not worried about it because we are from a technological perspective so far away from delivering right now that it's okay to you know to get carried away uh with some over promises 
But having said that, I, you know, I sit on this uh, forums about, you know, enhancement and augmentation and, and people do get carried away because I think it is on us alongside developing an appetite and excitement for the technology, also thinking about safety. And, you know, we mentioned kids, for example, there's hardly any research looking at how these technologies are accepted by kids and whether they could have uh, more serious side effects on them because of their critical period of development mm-hmm. in terms of brain plasticity compared to adults. So this is something that for me is, you know, it's the same question because we're asking always what are the opportunities, but also what are the limitations for these technologies. So this is work that needs to be done. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I think what I've enjoyed most, I mean, apart from the fascinating science, your enthusiasm for it really shines through. Um, And also your desire to kind of do something. I really love that phrase, to do something not just for the sake of being an intellectual, but to do something that really has, has impact. So even though my field is completely different, I'm sort of leaving the recording feeling quite inspired to go and make a difference in my own area as well. So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Thank you for asking. Oh, absolutely. We always finish with the same question, which is, could you give us what your your favourite fact about the brain? This fact, I think, tends to be missed a lot by um, neuroscientists and cognitive neuroscientists. The brain is actually housed within our body and is designed to protect our body. Uh, Often at times when I talk to cognitive neuroscientists and proper neuroscientists, they tend to talk and think and study the brain as if we were brains in a vat. And I feel like, you know, um, this fact is too often missed that you can only study the brain within the context of the body uh, and how using the brain is going to affect your day-to-day behaviors. I think I'm often guilty of thinking in terms of it being about, (laughs) so I often need a reminder about this. Thank you so much to Mark Making for joining us on today's episode of Brain Stories. And thanks to all our listeners for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.